Welcome. Uh, my name is Gene Healy. I'm a vice president here at the Cato Institute, and I'll be your moderator today. Thank you all for coming out to the first Cato event of 2016. Today we're going to spread the New Year's cheer and take the chill out of your bones with uh, an in-depth look at remote-controlled executions, the creeping surveillance state, and the seeming permanence of the imperial presidency. So, Merry New Year. Our focus today is the extraordinary new book by Charlie Savage, Power Wars Inside Obama's Post-9-11 Presidency. Uh, Charlie has been with the New York Times since 2008, and he has been the indispensable reporter on executive power issues since well before that. In 2007, while with the Boston Globe, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his work on the Bush administration's signing statements. His 2007 book, Takeover, The Return of the Imperial Presidency, was named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, Slate, and Esquire. To describe uh, power wars as comprehensive would, uh, I think, undersell it. I mean, look at this thing. Uh, you can't actually, you, there, there's no index available in the book. You have to actually print out 50 pages of index from Charlie's website. Uh, it's a mammoth undertaking and well worth the effort. It breaks new ground and new stories based on interviews with over 150 current and former officials. It's basically a one-man 9-11 commission report on how we got to where we are today. <clears throat> uh, Power Wars picks up where takeover left off with the arrival of a new administration that had pledged to, quote, turn the page on the executive aggrandizement of the Bush era. And yet, as Charlie writes, early on in the new president's tenure, Obama's policy choices that departed from Bush era programs dwindled, and those that continued or even expanded Bush era programs rose from a fierce campaign of drone strikes whose targets would include an American citizen to the perpetuation of a sprawling and voracious surveillance apparatus. People across the ide ideological spectrum would voice with increasing intensity what became a defining accusation not just of the moment, but of the entire presidency. Obama was acting like Bush. <laughs> Our distinguished commentator today is Michael Glennon, professor of international law at Tufts University and the former legal counsel to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. His 2014 book, National Security and Double Government, was the most disturbing thing I read that year. In it, Professor Glennon asks the key question, why does national security policy remain constant even when one president is replaced by another who has a candidate repeatedly, forcefully, and eloquently promised fundamental changes in that policy? He identifies three possible causes for this striking degree of policy continuity between the two administrations. One possible uh, answer is a rational good faith threat assessment 
by political actors. These were the policies we, need, we needed given the threats that we faced. Uh, another is the enormous political pressures brought to bear on the presidency, whether rational or not. Uh, but Professor Glennon puts his emphasis on a third cause, one that's gone under-recognized, what he calls an emergent autocracy made up of national security insiders. We've moved beyond a mere imperial presidency, he writes, to a structure of double government in which even the president exercises little substantive control over the overall direction of U.S. national security policy. The Boston Globe summed up the Glennon thesis rather starkly as, vote all you want, the secret government won't change. Now you can find evidence for all three of these causes in the pages of Power Wars. And reading it, it struck me that looking for a single culprit behind the persistence of the imperial presidency is something like looking for a monocausal explanation of the American obesity crisis. Are we fat because of high fructose corn syrup or uh, supersized portions or because we watch five hours of TV on average a day? Yes. Like our expanding waistlines, our expanding presidency is depressingly overdetermined. But anyone who wants to figure out how we got to where we are today, and if we can possibly get back, will have to start with power wars. To kick off that conversation, please welcome Charlie Savage. Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction, Gene. I like the idea of the one-man 9-11 commission. Uh, I could listen to you talk all day. And thank you very much, Michael, as well, for coming down to, from Boston to uh, participate in this event. I really liked his book. Uh, it was recommended to me, as I was telling him just a couple minutes ago, by a former lawyer in the Obama White House about a year and a half ago when I was researching my book. And we were talking about uh, the dilemmas and difficulties they had encountered once they had come into office. And I immediately ordered it and devoured it and cited it in my book. Uh, and thank you to all of you. I was wondering whether uh, we would have any turnout today. It's so, it's so cold uh, after the ridiculously warm December. I was wondering, would I go out? So I'm, a, I'm amazed and heartened to have such a good crowd and uh, those watching on C-SPAN as well. Uh, so let me, I'm just going to talk maybe 15 minutes about my book, and then Michael will talk a little bit, and then we'll have a conversation and move to audience questions. Uh, so I'll start with the story of my book. So I, yes, I've been in Washington covering national security issues and legal policy issues since 2003. Uh, I sort of rode the, the wave in on uh, Abu Ghraib and the uh, attempt by Senator McCain to impose a ban on torture and the signing statements by Bush that came out of that, as well as uh, the revelations about warrantless wiretapping by my future colleagues at the New York Times. I was then at the Boston Globe. Uh, and this was, and eventually became a specialist in this layer of what the government has been doing, the sort of continuing dilemmas and legal fights over executive power, national security, individual rights after 9-11. And you may remember in January of 2009 when President Obama was inaugurated, there was this moment in which it looked like the war on terror was suddenly abruptly over. He had, of course, run on a platform of change from 
George Bush's global war on terrorism. He'd been a big critic on the campaign trail of how the government had conducted itself in the years after 9-11. Uh, in his inaugural address, he talked about the, uh, you know, getting away from the sense that there had to be a trade-off between uh, constitutional ideals and security. And among the first things he did was issue a series of executive orders promising less secrecy, closing CIA black site prisons, banning torture, ordering Guantanamo closed. And it really looked like uh, it was over. And this thing that I had become a specialist in and a couple of colleagues of mine, uh, like Scott Shane, Mark Mazzetti, and so forth at the Times, did for a living uh, was no longer going to be available. And I remember joking to Scott, I think it was, uh, that we were going to have to find new jobs. Maybe there was an opening in the sports department and we could you know, keep paying the rent somehow. Uh, but very quickly, it became apparent uh, to me that it was not over, that there was going to be much greater continuity in the counterterrorism policies of the new administration uh, with the old one than the expectations created by then-Senator Obama's campaign rhetoric. Some of his uh, incoming cabinet members in sort of little-noticed remarks during their confirmation testimony had affirmed that, in fact, they thought it was lawful for the government to hold terrorism suspects without trial under the laws of war, that they were going to continue the practice of rendition, transferring people to other countries for one intelligence agency to the next, uh, based only on diplomatic assurances that there would not be mistreatment, was, which was exactly Bush's um, uh, a policy, at least on paper, as well. Uh, they shut down temporarily military commissions, but they'd done so in a way that looked like they were keeping the door open to resuming them, which is, of course, exactly what happened. They were stirring the state secrets privilege in court uh, to continue blocking lawsuits about torture and surveillance that they had inherited from the Bush administration. Uh, and all that was sort of apparent by two or three weeks into the new administration. And so I called up the new White House and said I was planning on writing a story about uh, this surprising emerging continuity. And one difference between the old administration and the new one was the Obama administration wanted to, or at least was willing to, engage with me. When I would call the Bush administration and say, hey, I'm going to write a story about this signing statement that says you can you know, torture notwithstanding the anti-torture law, they would kind of blow me off. Um, the this new administration called me into the White House. And I went in and I talked to Greg Craig. Uh, who was Obama's first White House counsel in his office. And we, we went through this sort of litany of things that weren't changing. And he explained that they were not going to have a shoot from the hip, uh, you know, bumper sticker slogan, abrupt changes to government policies. They were going to look carefully at everything they had inherited and move deliberately. And that involved going out to Langley and to the Pentagon and so forth, even during the transition, and being briefed by the members of the permanent national security establishment, the sort of subject of Michael's book about what the programs were, why they were necessary, why they'd been put in place, what they were doing, what revoking them would entail. And he argued that this, uh, you know, whether it was civil liberties people on the left or the right in a place like this who were upset by that, or it was Bush administration veterans who were seeming, uh, you know, claiming vindication by that, that both sides were wrong, they were charting their own course, and people should just give them time to let this work out. So I continued to cover these things, and I became very interested in the targeted killing of the American citizen, Anwar al-Awlaki, brought a lawsuit along with the ACLU, two different lawsuits, uh, to try to make them reveal their legal thinking about the scope and limits of 
the government's power to target an American citizen who had not been convicted in a court uh, in a sort of national security situation like that. And then I eventually began to teach a class uh, with Mike Davidson, a retired lawyer from the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, at Georgetown University on national security and the Constitution, in which we had to organize all this stuff that I had spent a decade immersing myself in, in a way that an educated but non-specialist could understand. We start, and I sort of started to structure, like, what are the 10 things you really need to know about Everything that's been unleashed about surveillance, where there's not, it's not clear what the law means anymore, or new technologies have challenged the old rules that weren't written for these situations. What are the 10 things you need to know about detention, or interrogation, or leak investigations, or secrecy, or war powers, uh, where 21st century situations have reopened questions that seem to be settled in the 20th century because the premises are all different now. You know, the laws of war are written for nation-state armies in uniform clashing on a literal battlefield, how that gets applied by analogy to a transnational non-state actor uh, armed conflict like the war against al-Qaeda has opened unending uh, tensions and dilemmas that are fascinating and unresolved. And the idea was that the students would learn this stuff and then the next time someone gets arrested for terrorism and they're on CNN, they're arguing about whether this person should be read the Miranda warning or when, should be prosecuted in a military commission or an Article Three civilian court, they would be equipped to understand what it was that was sort of the unspoken assumptions behind those arguments and where it came from. And then in the midst of that, Edward Snowden leaks uh, massive amounts of documents about uh, the surveillance state, and it becomes clearer than ever that Obama has not changed really at all uh, the NSA apparatus that he inherited, including the bulk collection of domestic phone records. And at that, that's when I decided that I, this, this stuff really needed to be organized in a book. Uh, I couldn't do it justice in a newspaper form. Uh, there was just too much material, and everything really related to everything else. You, could, you, know, you couldn't really understand what you were looking at in the argument about closing Guantanamo if you didn't also understand what had gone on with CIA torture and the attempt to prosecute and then the failure to prosecute and why commissions were collapsing, which in turn turned on you know, what had happened on Christmas 2009 and uh, the attempted underwear bombing and how that created this big fight in New York. And th these things were an embedded web of complexity. And to, to tell it systematically was the goal. So I've spent, as, a, as the introduction mentioned, I spent the next couple years uh, organizing and researching. I talked, when I, when I say I talked to 150 people, I don't mean that I had 150 interviews. I had probably 1,000 interviews because I kept circling back to people that I trusted and cross-referencing memories of accounts of internal deliberations and as I would focus on this and re-research it and then focus on that. Do you remember this? Someone else told me it happened this way. Is that correct? Is there a nuance I'm overlooking? And I assembled uh, this book, which is in some ways organized similarly to my Georgetown class. There are thematic chapters and then chronology within and stories within the chapter. And arising, you know, so a lot of it is sort of case studies. You're the fly on the wall. You're trying to, you're, you're, you get to be in the situation room as actual people who want to think of themselves as obeying the rule of law are dealing with difficult situations in the world 
and none of the options are perfect. There's no clear answer. Everything comes with downsides and risks. And why did they make the decisions they do? What were the options they discarded? Why did they discard them? So there's a lot of case studies. And, and how does that illustrate these recurring frictions of uh, the rules not being clear anymore and 20, you know, because they weren't written for these situations? And then, but then arising from that are some big picture questions. And the biggest of them all is, how is it that Obama has had so little change uh, from the policies that he inherited from the second term Bush administration? Where did this disconnect come from? Is the, why do people keep saying he's acting like Bush? How did we get here? What happened? And one of the takeaways uh, that I uh, put forward in this book as an argument is that what it means to act like Bush is, can mean more than one thing. Uh, and it's easier to see now than it was at the time during the Bush years when you know, organizations like Cato were having conferences and, and you know, where, in which people had panel discussions criticizing Bush or there were rallies and so forth, or, was that there were two different strands of criticism that were entangled together but are in fact distinct. There was a rule of law critique and there was a civil liberties critique. So the civil liberties critique says it's inherently wrong to have a warrantless wiretapping program or to torture or to have a system of military commissions because the state should not have that power vis-a-vis -vis the individual. This is un-American. The rule of law critique is agnostic about whether, maybe with the exception of torture, whether these things are a good idea or a bad idea. Torture is always illegal. But and maybe these are a good idea, given the challenges of 21st century transnational terrorism. But it's focused on the process. The president doesn't get to break the law. And so if a federal statute says you must get a warrant to wiretap on domestic soil, even in wartime, the president doesn't get to say in secret, I'm the commander in chief. I can ignore that and disregard it. The president has to go to Congress and persuade lawmakers to remake the law so that statutes authorize rather than forbid what it is he or she wants to do. And so the, one of the big differences between the rule of law critique and the civil liberties critique is that the rule of law critique is fixable. If something is, violates civil liberties, the only way to fix it is to stop doing that thing. If something violates the rule of law, Congress can pass a bill to change the law so that it no longer violates the rule of law. And in fact, in the second term of the Bush administration, Congress passes the Military Commissions Act, passes with Senator Obama's vote the FISA Amendments Act, and we know now, which we didn't know at the time, the Intelligence Court was issuing secret rulings that took these unilateral programs that were collecting everyone's phone records and email records and rooted them in a you know, somewhat tendentious claim that the Patriot Act authorized them imposed court oversight. And so by the time Obama becomes president, if you think the problem with, that act, with Bush, that acting like Bush means violating the rule of law in the national security sphere, uh, the problem is largely fixed. If you think the problem is that acting like Bush is violating civil liberties, the problem is not fixed. Because it, who cares if Congress has blessed it? The government just needs to stop doing this thing. So part two of that analysis is Barack Obama is a lawyer, obviously. Joe Biden is a lawyer. Bush and Cheney are not lawyers. They're CEOs by background. They had very few lawyers that, they, that surrounded them. They were perhaps the least lawyerly administration ever. The few lawyers they let into the room had very, these sweeping idiosyncratic theories of executive power. 
We've gone from that extreme to the opposite extreme. This is probably the most lawyerly administration ever. Not only are Barack Obama and, and Joe Biden law school graduates, they are clearly the most comfortable when they're talking to fellow law school graduates who analyze problems the same way, who speak the same lingo. So they fill the upper ranks of their administration with lawyers, fellow lawyers, and policy-making roles. There's a million examples I can give. The easiest one is, say, Secretary of State. Bush's two secretaries of state, Condi Rice and Colin Powell, are not lawyers. Obama's Hillary Clinton and John Kerry are, but that replicates itself throughout the upper ranks of the national security political apparatus. And so if their lawyerly thinking, their lawyerly approach to problems uh, is brought to bear on what do they think the problem is with Bush. Not surprisingly, they are uh, overwhelmingly, and if you go back and look at transcripts of things from the Bush years, the, they were the ones articulating the rule of law critique, not the civil liberties critique. And this was just sort of obscured in the campaign, especially when Senator Obama is in the primary against Hillary Clinton, and they're competing for the affections of a liberal base that's very upset with Bush and Cheney. Uh, and no one is going to, you know, they don't want to say, well, I think what they're doing is maybe okay. They just did it the wrong way, but it's fixed now, so no worries. You know, they were like, this is wrong. But if you go back and you parse what they were saying, uh, what Obama was saying especially, uh, it was quite deliberate. In fact, I tell a story about how in uh, 2007, August, when Senator Obama gives his big national security speech at the Woodrow Wilson Center down the, the road from here, uh, he was originally going to say, I'm against military commissions. And Jay Johnson, who's now the Homeland Security Sec Secretary and was in his first term the Pentagon General Counsel, uh, a campaign advisor says, you don't know what problems you might encounter as president. You need to maintain flexibility. And they rewrite the speech so that he says, I'm against the Military Commissions Act of 2006. And people hear that and think he's against commissions, but really he said he's against that. Commissions that were set up that way, which leaves him open to, to being pro-commissions under some other law, which is exactly what happens when Congress passes a new version of the Commissions Act and he embraces them. Uh, so I'll close with... And a story about that sort of illustrates the themes that I've been talking about. So in 2013, when Ed Snowden reveals uh, many things, among them the bulk phone records program, the Patriot Act program, and there's this sort of eruption on the left and the right, civil libertarians on the left, libertarians on the right, Jim Sensenbrenner of all people in Congress can't stand this, right? This is not America, and we don't want this. There's no, there's no political support. And it leads ultimately to the enactment of the USA Freedom Act. And it's sort of, therefore, su pretty surprising in, in retrospect that Obama kept this thing. And one of the things I reconstructed was the meeting at which he learned about it and decided to keep it. And that was uh, February 4 or February 6, I think it's 6, 2009. So he's been president for a couple weeks. And uh, one of his few lawyer, political lawyers who knew about the program because she had been a uh, national security lawyer in the Senate when the FISA Amendments Act was enacted and so got classified briefings, really wants the new president and his top team to understand what it is they've inherited in the surveillance world. So she organizes this briefing. It's in the Situation Room right after lunch. Uh, and Obama is late. It's a, it's a sort of a fraught moment. Dick Cheney has broken with protocol to say to publicly attack him and say that his decision to end the black site program and torture is going to result in the United States being attacked in a catastrophic way. And the day before Cheney says this, and that afternoon he's supposed to go meet relatives of the 
um, victims of the 9-11 attacks and the coal bombing who are upset with him that he, they've frozen military commission proceedings at Guantanamo. So it's a very sort of stressful moment with the possibility of an attack in the forefront of his mind. He comes in, he's chewing nicotine gum, chomp. Uh, so he's obviously a little bit stressed. And sitting around the table in the Situation Room are members of of the permanent security state, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency. Uh, they're the directors and lawyers and Justice Department, national security officials, people, these are, these are Michael's people, you have people who stay on between administrations and sort of run the show even as a George Bush is replaced by a Barack Obama. Um, and so they explain these programs. Here's what we're doing here. Here's what we're doing here. And uh, they get to the Patriot Act program, and they say, well, this allows us to trace indirect links between people, and we can use it to hunt for hidden cells, associates of known terrorists that we didn't know about, hidden associates, that is. And uh, it's really important. We think if we'd had it in place before 9-11, we would have stopped those attacks, which is a claim that doesn't withstand scrutiny once the program comes to light and people put pressure on it, but that's what they said. And uh, it was put in place unilaterally by George W. Bush in October of 2001, and maybe there were some legal problems with it originally, but in 2006, the intelligence court began blessing it, and it's the, so it's rooted now in a statutory authority, and the, intelli the intelligence oversight committees know about it, and they're all for it, so all three branches of government are on board, and there's been some problems obeying the rules with it lately. We just discovered but those are just technical. We're going to fix them, uh, and so we think it's all... Everything's fine. And Obama says to them, well, I'm comfortable with what you're telling me, but I want my lawyers to take a look. And his lawyers are sitting next to him. They are Greg Craig, that White House counsel that I talked to about a week after that, and Eric Holder, who just got confirmed as attorney general. And so they go off and they look at it, and they do not disturb that initial sort of decision to mend or, and keep, not end that program. Uh, so I... Mostly of these 150 people I talked to, I did so on background rules. I could not identify them as sources of particular information. But occasionally, I was able to negotiate with something onto the record with somebody. And uh, Greg Craig nicely let me say uh, to my readers and now to you what it was he said when I asked him, why did you guys keep this thing? Look how, look how little support there was for it across the ideological spectrum. Why didn't you guys just? Tell the president we think you should turn this off the moment you learned about it. You could have avoided this huge headache. Um, and his answer was, well, look, Eric Holder and I are both criminal lawyers. Craig was a former public defender, and Craig Holder was a former prosecutor. They'd done a lot of criminal trials in which police had used pen register trap and trace devices to collect records of who a suspect was calling or receiving calls from and when, not the content. And they knew very well that in 1979, the Supreme Court had ruled that the Fourth Amendment does not cover that kind of data. Because once you reveal something to the phone company, a third party, you have no expectation of privacy over it. And that may have been a case that involved one suspect's calls for a couple days, not everyone in the country's calls for five years. But the reasoning behind it, why the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply, doesn't uh, turn on volume. You know, a million times zero is still zero. And so there's no constitutional issue. And it was very important to them that this had been brought under the court's oversight and rooted in a claim that a statute authorized it and they didn't seem to be a rogue program. 
and there seemed to be legal authority for it, at least on the surface. And so the question then was not whether to keep it or not. The intelligence community wanted it, and there was legal authority for it. So the, the, the task was just to get it you know, within the bounds of what the court had authorized, and they added a few little more internal oversight, and that was it. And they didn't think about it again until Snowden came along. And if you think about that, that is the way a lawyer would analyze the issue. Is there legal authority for this? Yes, no problem. No, there's a problem. And it sort of jumps past or doesn't go down the path of the civil liberties critique. Is this the way the United States government should be acting? Is this the country that we thought we lived in? Uh, and so that illustrates, I think, some of at least part of an explanation equipping people to understand why things turned out the way it did. Is it right that Obama acted like Bush, turning on how you define what acting like Bush means? So with that, I will pause and let Michael spiel. Thank you. Gene, uh, thank you uh, again for inviting me back to uh, Cato. It's a pleasure to be here today to talk about a book uh, for which I have uh, tremendous admiration. Nearly all books on uh, national security policy are either about the facts or the law, but not about both. Virtually no one has the real-life sources to know what's really happening and also the legal knowledge to put what's happening into a legal framework. In this regard, Charlie Savage is unique, and he has written a unique book that combines deep, behind-the-scenes reportage with lucid legal analysis. A hundred years from now, I believe that Power Wars will be the first book that legal historians pick up in trying to understand the Obama administration's national security policy. The great significance of this book, in my reading of it, lies in the massive documentation of the dominance of the permanent security state, as Charlie has just referred to it. Its influence is often subtle and almost always behind the scenes, but it is nonetheless pervasive in the Obama administration every bit as much as it was in the Bush administration. Both the national security bureaucracy is a powerful force, Charlie writes, and on many occasions the Obama team bent to its warnings that particular counterterrorism actions were necessary, unquote. The number of holdovers, officials who held the same or similar jobs in both administrations, is quite remarkable. Over and over, key decisions are made or influenced by ever-present careerists. The law governing their conduct is blurry and malleable, giving them broad power that's exercised with little accountability. They thrive on secrecy. Quote, the permanent bureaucracy gets nothing from transparency and sees it only in terms of risk unquote, an administration official tells Charlie. Page after page of power wars provides evidence of its reach. No branch of government is immune to its influence. The president, the Congress, and the courts all defer to it. 
consider for a moment each branch in turn. When it comes to national security matters, the president is more presider than decider. Charlie cogently explains why, quote, for all the focus the media and historians tend to put on presidents as individuals, Bush did this, Obama did that, the world and the government are so complicated that a single person cannot pay attention to all of it. Presidents set the tone and the priorities, and they usually are the ones who make the very biggest decisions. But the overwhelming majority of what an administration does takes place in the trenches of the executive branch, branch bureaucracy. Dozens or hundreds of individuals whose names are unknown to the public and who rarely show up in history books make decisions every day about matters that will most likely never be brought to the president's personal attention or that may be discussed only briefly in the Oval Office at a 10,000-foot level, unquote. <clears throat> Book is filled with examples of what Charlie is talking about. In 2009, for example, as Charlie just mentioned, Obama, sworn in only days before, is briefed for the first time by the managers of the permanent security state on its continuing bulk surveillance programs. They assure him that the programs are not only vital to the nation's security, but perfectly legal. It seems to mean nothing to anyone present that the surveillance programs in question were legitimated by a pseudo-court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or barely understood by cheerleaders of the intelligence committees, which the 9-11 Commission had earlier labeled as dysfunctional and John McCain described as co-opted. So Obama turns to Eric Holder and Greg Craig, as Charlie described, already very busy, probably trying still to figure out where the men's rooms were, and asks what they think, as though they could realistically, at that point, raise any meaningful concerns. And of course, not surprisingly, neither one of them does. As time goes on, whistleblower prosecutions go from three before the Obama administration to nine during the administration, or eight, as Charlie points out, depending upon how you count. And the increase is driven not by a conscious decision by anyone in the administration. Charlie says he can't pinpoint any decision by any official to pick up the tempo, but it's driven instead by improved surveillance technology, which makes it easier to identify leakers. So prosecution is basically on autopilot. Autopilot, the term that John Kerry used to explain the continuing surveillance program that intercepted Angela Merkel's cell phone conversations, which Obama, of course, said that he knew nothing about. The result is a policy of prosecution that has removed one last check on the permanent security state by crippling investigative journalism in this country, a program that has proceeded with no decision to start it, no decision to continue it, and of course, no decision to stop it. Meanwhile, within the permanent security state itself, officials operate under an incentive to push off costs and risks to their successors. The result is a continuing drive for less accountability and fewer checks, so as to enable quick responses to terrorist emergencies. Officials need that power, again, because the blood will be on their hands if an attack occurs on their watch. We hear this 
over and over again in the book, who will bear the risk of casualties, whose hands will end up bloody. But there are, of course, competing long-term risks. There's the long-term risk in neutering the courts as independent guardians of freedom. There's the long-term risk in secretly compiling watch lists and no-fly lists that can easily be deployed to deprive people of constitutionally protected rights, like the right to, like the right to bear arms, as was uh, just recently proposed. There are long-term risks in legitimating torture by allowing torturers to go unpunished. But within the permanent security state, the payoff lies in meeting short-term risks because the long-term price will always be paid on someone else's watch. Congress itself operates under similar incentives as Power War shows. No legislator wants to risk being defeated for re-election because he ignored a recommendation of the permanent security state. Its emphasis on military and intelligence solutions over diplomatic or political solutions saturates the legislative process. Legislators are content to play a ceremonial role and to avoid hard national security decisions that may come back to haunt them. Congress, therefore, stands sheepishly by while Obama's lawyers present an argument for the legality of the war against ISIS, an argument based on a 14-year-old AUMF that authorized a different war for a different purpose against a different enemy, an argument that the New York Times has rightly labeled preposterous. Congress's leading Intelligence Oversight Committee, meanwhile, presents a report on torture that leaves out any mention of illegality or personal accountability and makes no recommendations whatsoever for any sort of reform. It identifies 9,400 documents relevant to its inquiry, writes three letters to the White House requesting those documents, gets no response, and then simply drops the request. No subpoena, nothing. The committee takes no depositions. It conducts no interviews, even from victims who ask to testify. Treaty obligations notwithstanding, Obama makes no effort to bring any of the torturers to justice, even those whose barbarous conduct exceeded John Yu's extravagant guidelines. The only person to be punished in connection with its torture program, so far as I can tell, is the CIA official who first openly discussed it in a 2007 interview with ABC News. The judiciary, Charlie points out, is repeatedly urged by Obama's lawyers to steer clear of these matters, and of course it does so. In response to his lawyers' arguments, the courts elect to play no role, either before or after a drone strike, in reviewing a decision to kill American citizens deemed to be terrorists overseas, even away from hot battlefields. The courts proceed to dismiss case after case, following the administration's urging on the basis of the state secrets privilege, lack of standing, 
or other claims of non-justiciability. It's difficult, in fact, to identify a single case in which any plaintiff who has suffered even the most grievous injury as the result of the Bush-Obama counterterrorism policies has been awarded a day in court, let alone a case in which any plaintiff has been awarded a dime in damages. In the realm of war powers, Obama attacks Libya with no fidelity to the constitutional principle that he himself identified in the Boston Globe in response to Charlie's question, absent any threat against the United States, without congressional approval, and then Obama proceeds to sidestep the War Powers Resolution 60-day time limit with a, quote, legally available interpretation, not the logical interpretation, not the traditional interpretation, not the best or most widely accepted interpretation, but an available interpretation that the head of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department rejects and the Pentagon's General Counsel rejects and which barely passes the laugh test. But it gets away with it, as Charlie rightly points out, because in the conflict against terrorism, quote, legal theory is malleable. In matters of national security, the line that separates policy and politics from law has grown blurry, unquote. I would add that Obama gets away with it, as Power Wars illustrates, because his lawyers have done all they can to make the law more malleable. Ben Rose, the Deputy National Security Advisor, brushes aside the need to get congressional approval to attack Syria. Quote, it's easy to get lawyers to do clever wordings, he tells Charlie, and we could always point to Kosovo, unquote. Rose's comment <clears throat> brings to mind Madeleine Albright's response to Robin Short when the British Foreign Secretary told her that his lawyers had legal problems in bombing Kosovo. Robin, she replied, get new lawyers. Well, Obama got new lawyers, much more clever than the old Bush lawyers with their jejun theory that the president is an elected king who can violate the law with impunity merely by reciting the magic jingle, commander in chief. Obama's new lawyers never need to say that. They're always able to come up with a more refined, Baroque alternative theory for reaching the same result. Yet the curtain does sometimes get pulled back, as it was in the Jerusalem passport case. There, Obama's lawyers cited the infamous inherent powers case, Curtis Wright, 10 times, relying upon what the Supreme Court described as, quote, unbounded power, unquote. Charlie describes the quote, circular logic of Bush's old lawyers. Quote, a president had done certain things based on those theories, and because he had done them, those theories must be true, unquote. If the logic of Obama's new lawyers is less circular than the logic of Bush's old lawyers, the question that's raised recurrently in power wars is why that should matter, given that the new lawyers' conclusions in shaping this ever-malleable law are almost always the same. <clears throat> the rebuttal of Obama's defenders is curious. As Charlie just mentioned, some of Obama's lawyers who had earlier criticized Bush's national security policies before Obama took office 
now insists that their real criticism of Bush's policies was based not on civil liberties concerns, but on rule of law concerns. They contend, as Charlie points out, that they never really objected to the substantive Bush policies at issue, such as bulk surveillance, but only to the process by which those policies were implemented, such as lack of congressional approval. Their real objective in the Obama administration, they suggest, has simply been to restore a rule of law more respectful of process. Well, it's an interesting attempted distinction, but I think it's got three difficulties. First, as commonly understood, the concept of the rule of law is not that narrow. As most people use the term, the rule of law is not limited merely to process and procedure. It includes at least minimal elements of liberty. Most people would not regard a nation as governed by the rule of law if it consistently abridged the fundamental freedoms of its citizens, even if it did that regularly with dotted I's and crossed T's. It was fair to believe when Senator Obama and his people criticized Bush's policies that they shared this broader, popular conception of the rule of law as protecting both process and liberty. Second, many of the policies that Bush's critics earlier objected to and that Obama has continued are in fact purely procedural. They have no substantive dimension. The procedure is the substance. Consider in this regard the state secrets privilege, prosecuting whistleblowers, resisting meaningful congressional oversight, using signing statements to bypass the intent of Congress, withholding documents under executive privilege, and classifying purely legal analysis. I suspect that most critics of those Bush policies did not regard the interests those policies abridged simply as civil liberties add-ons that are extraneous to the rule of law. No, they regarded those interests as encompassed by the rule of law, which they expected President Obama to honor. This brings us third to the bottom line question. Theory aside, as a practical matter, just how much bite does Obama's rule of law actually have? What, in the end, do all these 700 pages of legalist slicing and dicing really add up to? One would think that if the rule of law means anything, at least on occasion, it has to prevent public officials from doing something that they might otherwise be inclined to do. So the question is, what specifically has the rule of law prevented the administration from doing? The astonishing answer to this question was provided by none other than John Brennan speaking off the cuff at Harvard in 2011. Brennan said, quote, I have never found a case that all legal authorities or legal interpretations that came out of the lawyers group prevented us from doing something that we thought was in the best interest of the United States to do, unquote. Could that possibly be correct? Charlie, in 2014, asked Ben Rhodes basically the same question. Could he think of any instance in which the Obama administration had not done something that it wanted to do because the Obama lawyers said that it would be illegal? Rhodes could think of only one example, rejecting the proposed exfiltration of an Iraqi prisoner without the Iraqi government's consent. 
I myself read Power Wars with this same question in mind. I looked, page after page, for one additional instance in which this most loyally of American presidents was told no. You can't legally do something that you want to do. I could not find a single example. This sobering record seems to belie the claim of Obama's defenders that they were merely misunderstood. Their idea of the rule of law turns out to be more in the nature of an adornment or decoration than a set of actual restraints, something added after the fact rather than a fixed pre-existing framework within which policy is actually formed. Of course, there's always the possibility, given the number of lawyers filling these jobs in the Obama administration, that legal considerations somehow discipline the internal dialogue and nudge policymakers to focus on legal constraints. Up to a point, I'm sure that's true, but only up to a point. Let us remember Richard Nixon, John Dean, John Mitchell, John Ehrlichman, and Charles Colson, all were lawyers. Dean has said that 21 lawyers were involved in Watergate. If the Obama administration is the most heavily lawyered in history, the Nixon administration is surely a close runner-up. The Watergate tapes do not seem to reveal an Oval Office in which the dialogue was disciplined by a desire to comply with the rule of law. As a lawyer, I'll close by simply noting, I, I understand that dynamic. All lawyers like to make their clients happy, and Obama's lawyers are no exception. Sometimes, however, a lawyer simply has to be an abominable no man. You don't see many abominable no men leaping out of the pages of power wars, what does leap out of the pages, to me at least, is the deep and enduring influence of the permanent security state. Thank you. Before we uh, open it up for questions, uh, let's, uh, I was going to give Charlie a chance to respond and uh, uh, not to pile on, uh, but uh, you know, I, I've never felt worse about going to law school than, than this morning. But, and uh, just to amplify uh, one of Michael's points, um, in addition to the, the end run around the Office of Legal Counsel to continue the uh, uh, war in Libya beyond the uh, war powers resolutions time limits, uh, more broadly, uh, you know, the, the definition of the rule of law is hard to, to nail down. Uh, when you uh, look for it, you usually get a, a, a list of points. But when you, when you do look for it, many of those lists, lawn followers and others, include a failure to publicize. So with particular respect to the Section 215 program, yes, maybe it had been blessed by uh, the Intelligence Committee's and by the secret court um, and by the executive branch, but no one in the wider world knew that, uh, that a federal human relations database was being built uh, on the basis of uh, an interpretation of Section 215 
that considered all Americans' phone records relevant to <clears throat> authorized investigations of terrorism. Can we really say that the rule of law, and, and you've spent uh, quite a bit of time challenging uh, in court the Obama administration to be more, more forthcoming, not about sources and methods, but uh, its actual legal interpretations behind some of these things. Can we really say that the, the rule of law problem is, has been fixed or largely fixed when so much of this is going on behind closed doors and is not publicized? Okay. So I have two or three things I want to say in response, uh, both to, to Michael and, and now to Gene. And to start with the latter, you know, this, this dichotomy of rule of law critique versus civil liberties critique, and that's not something that Obama's defenders have put forward to me. That's kind of my analysis. And of course, it's a model, you know, and in like all models, it oversimplifies in some respects. For example, the Fourth Amendment is a law. Right, a higher law, and, and that protects privacy and individual rights in a substantive way. Um, and so, can you, if would something that violates the Fourth Amendment but not a statute be okay with the rule of law? Of course not. Um, and but it's just a way of thinking about uh, or helping people think about how acting like Bush might mean different things to different observers in a way that helps us understand the disconnect between the way Obama's governed and the expectations created by his campaign rhetoric. It certainly doesn't excuse or it's not the end all be all. So that's the first thing I want to say. Um, secondly, so there's, there's, it's, it's too far to say in a couple different ways, I think. So I, I want to make the case that although I, I agree generally with Michael, about the power of the deep state and how difficult it is to bucket. And I think that's a, you know, a major f explanatory force. I don't think it's the only force. And I think that his portrait of um, a democratic system in which the president and the courts and Congress are irrelevant is too bleak. And I want to explain a little bit about why even what I've talked about in the book you know, complicates that. Um, but I also want to say in, in another way how he, he could have gone further in a certain respect. So let me march through this in a couple of ways. First of all, there are other ways in which this administration hasn't done things it wanted to do because it seemed to be illegal. The number one way, is, uh, fact in that pattern is that Guantanamo remains open. And if Congress hadn't passed a statute that barred bringing detainees onto U.S. soil, Guantanamo would have been closed years ago. Uh, and they just haven't been willing to violate or challenge that statute, although his signing statement and, and from the podium rhetoric has become increasingly uh, aggressive in that respect. And in the Bergdahl Taliban swap, he violated another provision of the uh, transfer restrictions based on a commander, a Bush-like commander-in-chief override claim. I think that's the only really clean commander-in-chief claim he's made so far. But on the table is the question of whether at the end of 2016, say, after Hillary Clinton is elected, because it wouldn't make sense to do it if Marco Rubio or whoever was elected, he would just send them back. But, and, but before her inauguration, he will just simply order the military to put the remaining prisoners on a plane, notwithstanding the statute, and fulfill his longstanding goal of closing Gitmo before he leaves office. Uh, but uh, to date, he hasn't done that, and I think the reason he hasn't done that is ex explained by the law. And I also think it's a little bit oversimplistic to say that the law dictates outcomes in this sphere of national security policymaking, where there's 
a bright line answer and you either, yes, you can do it or no, you can't. And it's totally obvious. You know, most of, one of the reasons this stuff is so murky is that it's, it's extremely rare for there to be um, judicial precedent that gives you the clean, clear answer. Very often in this realm, uh, no one has standing to bring a lawsuit. There's very few precedents to act as guideposts that are from the courts as opposed to just internal executive branch historical actions and memos. And uh, it, it may not, in fact, it may genuinely not, in fact, be clear what the answer is. Uh, the several options are reasonable and on the wall, not off the wall. And within that sphere, um, you can still have rule of law mattering because a government that wants to think of itself as obeying the rule of law and wants to be able to publicly justify its actions both at home and abroad as consistent with recognizable mainstream understandings of what the law is, will find that uh, legal constraints, while not dictating outcomes, are a, nevertheless a factor that shapes and disciplines deliberations about what the policy choice is going to be. Uh, and so military factors and diplomatic factors and political factors and so forth are equally important, but it's sort of the, the idea, well, what is the legal authority for this? How are we going to say that this was justified? Can push you away from a choice that would be very difficult to justify legally and towards a choice that is consistent with most people's understanding of the law. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have breakdowns like the Libya situation where everyone says, what are you doing here? But generally that may mean that you don't, have a lot of situations like Brendan is talking about where they wanted to do X and the lawyer said it couldn't be done because the very discussion of what the legal authority is steers them away from X in the first place and towards a, uh, towards a Y. So that's another way in which I think the world is more complicated uh, than, um, than some of the, the critique we heard a minute ago. Here's where I think you could go further. Um, since 9-11, uh, the Bush and after 9/11, the Bush administration and Congress transformed the national security bureaucracy. You know, it created a Department of Homeland Security. It created an office of the Director of National Intelligence. It created within the Justice Department a National Security Division, and so forth. And this has literally meaned, meant that the national security state has more seats around the table when these things are being discussed than it used to have. Uh, there are voices now who are, whose job is to represent the security interest among other competing priorities and values. Uh, and they're going to be louder in the meetings because there's more of them, because there's more institutional roles for them to fill. And that makes things harder. And it especially makes things harder uh, to change something that the security state wouldn't want to do. If you have a governing process that values consensus and fully ventilating issues among all interested parties and rigorously adhering to process. That has been the Obama administration with very rare exceptions. They, that, that's part of their sort of how the fact that they're so lawyerly spills over into things that even don't directly involve what is the answer to this legal question. There are, uh, they value such this rigorous adherence to process, and if someone somewhere disagrees with something, they don't go ahead, they bump it up to the higher level in the bureaucracy, and they think about it some more, and they keep punting it all the way up. The Bush administration was very different. The Bush administration steamrolled bureaucratic opposition. 
And sometimes that bureaucratic opposition came from the national security state. And I think so some of the Bush administration's record in doing things like suddenly creating military commissions by fiat or having a or getting deciding that prisoners were not going to be treated in accordance with the Geneva Conventions or uh, not just with torture, but other ways, which the military was vehemently against the uniform military, but they didn't matter because the White House was willing to push it through. Shows that, um, it, it's, it's ironic to cite that as a way in which your vision is too bleak, right? But that shows that if you have an administration uh, that is will, where the political actors are willing to be aggressive, eventually you know, they can do what they wanna do sometimes. Uh, notwithstanding opposition from the deep state. Uh, and so an irony of the Obama years is they overlearned the lessons of the Bush years. That, and you know, Condi Rice writes in her memoir about how she didn't even know that she was the national security advisor. She didn't even know military commissions were on the table until Cheney had already put it in front of Bush's face and he had signed it and she learned about it from the media. And they were not going to have a dysfunctional process like that, the, the Obama people. Tom Donnell and his um, one of his most important national security advisors and a lawyer, not coincidentally, you know, deliberately designed this process where everyone would be consulted and all these extra seats at the table would have a chance to assert veto power, at least in the short term. And there's always then going to be a, someone who asserts a veto. Should we let this particular person out of Guantanamo? You know, nine people in the room say yes, one person says no, and the person stays in Guantanamo, at least for the time being. Should we release this memo that explains our secret interpretation of the Patriot Act or what we think the scope and limits of our authority is to kill American citizens in a place like Yemen who we think are terrorists but haven't been tried. Nine people say yes, one says no, and it doesn't get released. But that's a decision by this president and his people to have a decision-making process um, that, uh, that means that it's hard to roll steamroll through bu internal bureaucratic opposition. Um, and the Bush is a counterexample, of course, maybe a warning one uh, as well of, of another way of doing business. Um, so I have more to say, but I don't want to ramble on too much. So let me stop there and let Michael respond. But Charlie, thank you. That, uh, that does uh, clarify a lot. Let me, uh, in uh, an effort to continue the clarification, uh, just say uh, uh, three things. First, I certainly do not, uh, in the book National Security and Double Government, try to make the case or, or, or support to believe that what I call the Trumanite network, the uh, permanent security state, as Charlie refers to it, always gets its way and that its views always trump the uh, elected representatives of the people in Congress and the presidency and the, their appointees on the courts. No, quite the contrary. Um, and I just will add a footnote at this point. Double government is a term used by Walter Badgett in an 1867 book describing a theory that uh, explains the operation of the English Constitution. And the theory is that there are dignified institutions that generate legitimacy on the part of the, uh, on, on the, part of the public through public deference, the monarchy and the House of Lords which the English people believe um, actually engage in governance, but the actual governance is carried out by a behind-the-scenes set of institutions, the prime minister and the cabinet. And so this, this bifurcated system of double government has arisen in which the so-called efficient 
institutions actually run the show, but legitimacy is generated by the institutions that exist largely for, for public consumption. My suggestion in this book is that our dignified institutions that exist largely for public consumption are the presidents, have become the presidency and the Congress and the courts. It's not that they are irrelevant. Quite the contrary, as Badgett points out, the theory would not work. They would not generate legitimacy if they never controlled any decision. Of course, you have to have counterexamples. It's rather like you know, playing uh, poker with, with a um, dealer who's using a marked deck. If you never win a hand, if the dealer always wins, you're going to get up and walk away from the table. The point of double government is, no, sometimes the courts win, sometimes the president wins, sometimes uh, the Congress wins, sometimes the military and intelligence agencies do get trumped by those institutions. The bottom line is the system is rigged. The system is rigged, as my senator uh, repeatedly says. And my final point, I guess, would be a question, Charlie. Just to clarify, I certainly would be the last person to suggest that national security law is a regime that is filled with bright line rules. Quite the opposite, and I've made the point repeatedly that particularly in the realm of the international rules, the law of war governing drone strikes and cyber war, for example, rules are, just as Charlie describes, in a state of flux. They're, they're blurry and extremely malleable. That does not mean, however, that there are not some bright line rules in other areas. You've got to look at this one issue at a time. It gets very complicated. It's very difficult to generalize in this regard. Looking at one specific area, however, I think it's instructive. Take a look at the war powers. Charlie asked Barack Obama as a candidate a question. When did he think the president could use armed force without congressional approval? And Obama gave a very specific, I dare say, bright line answer. My question to Charlie is, do you think that answer was wrong? Do you think that's not the law as he stated it? So to flesh out the question, uh, in, in this 2007 survey I conducted of would-be presidents ahead of Iowa and New Hampshire on executive power issues, one of the questions I asked was, under what circumstances, if any, was the president had the constitutional authority to bomb another country absent an imminent threat to the United States or prior congressional authorization. The big issue there at the time was Bush and Cheney were saber-rattling about bombing Iran's nuclear facilities, but the question was general. And Obama said um, the Constitution does not give the president the authority to attack another country absent an imminent threat or prior congressional authorization. In March of 2009, the Arab, sorry, 2011, the Arab Spring protests break out across the uh, Middle East. And uh, quickly, the governments of Egypt and Tunisia fall, but sandwiched between them is Libya. Gaddafi does not want to fall, and he is, starts pushing back against the protest movement, which is based in Benghazi. His forces get to the gates of Benghazi, and he is threatening to go in, basically, and wipe everybody out. Like, he's on the radio threatening to go house by house. And the um, 
as this was happening, the Senate had voted unanimously for a resolution saying we should apply, uh, uh, impose a no-fly zone, but everything seemed sort of stymied. The UN wasn't going to move. And suddenly the UN Security Council authorizes an air war to protect civilians in Libya, which takes care of the international law problem. Uh, and NATO swings into action to impose that um, no-fly zone and push the forces back from Benghazi. And the question is, can the United States, the domestic law question, is who gets to decide whether the United States is going to participate in that intervention? And Obama's answer would seem to suggest, forget would seem to, Obama's answer from 2007 meant absent a vote from Congress, since there, whether or not Gaddafi slaughters civilians in Benghazi does not an imminent threat to the United States, as Bob Gates, the Secretary of Defense, more or less says, uh, we couldn't do it. Now, into this intrudes political reality. And this is where part of one of the places where I think the constraints on who, how things happen include this deep state, but they also include technological change and they include political realities and they include Congress, both Congress as an actor and Congress as a dysfunctional non-actor. Uh, this is the moment um, sort of right after the Tea Party midterm election, Republicans have retaken the House, but the Republican Party itself is divided between uh, mainstream Republicans and the sort of 50-member Tea Party caucus who want to sh uh, shut down the government if Obama does not agree to uh, revoke Obamacare, which he's not going to do, obviously. And there's this huge this sort of you may remember this was a, a moment in, of one crisis after another. The government's going to shut down now. Oh, no, let's vote for two weeks to keep it open. Now it's going to shut down again. No, let's vote for three weeks to keep it open. Looming on the horizon is the debt ceiling. And Speaker Boehner is striking these deals that his own Tea Party caucus will not go along with, so he's forced to rely on Democratic votes to keep the government open. And uh, there's this bitterness and vitriol, and um, everyone is going home after all this, two of these fights in a row for a scheduled recess. And the political reality at that moment is that even if Obama were to come to Congress and say, please authorize force in Libya, they were not in a position to vote on anything, even though the Senate had just unanimously approved this. And we think behind the scenes, uh, congressional leaders of both parties were saying, just go ahead and do it. Uh, so that raises for Obama a, uh, a dilemma, right? This whole book is about dilemmas. So in this case, the dilemma was stick to his prior stated constitutional principles, and the United States does not take part in this air campaign, which can't really happen without the United States. Um, and uh, then all these people get slaughtered. Or save those people, but violate those principles. And he decides to violate his principles and intervene in Libya. Uh, and does save those people. Although, of course, Libya then becomes a complete mess, but sort of in slower motion. But, and then that comes back to Congress when they come back, and they and the question is, you know, was that legal, even or you know, in some kind of like Civil War Abraham Lincoln way? Maybe it wasn't strictly legal, but they could retroactively fix the problem by voting for it. But they simply just they don't, right? And it's, in fact, they have three before them three different options. Vote to end the war, vote to authorize the war, vote to authorize support to our NATO allies like surveillance and refueling and munitions, but not us directly 
uh, attacking Gaddafi forces, and the Congress splits three ways, and all three fail. And so it's completely, you know, inept. Well, what does that even mean there? And so uh, part of what that demonstrates, I think, to Obama, even before we get to the complexity of the war powers resolution fight 60 days later, um, I, I, I think that's a crucial moment for understanding his evolution. Up till that point, he had been, the foil had been Bush and Cheney. He wanted to show that he could, you could be president without being the guy who said, I'm the commander in chief and Congress doesn't matter and I can just do whatever I want and the law is a nicety. And the foil starting in 2011 begins to shift to the Republican Tea Party House obstructionism. And is government, is he gonna be able to do what he wants to do? Is the government gonna function at all? What is his responsibility uh, when from his perspective, Congress is simply dysfunctional and it's not performing its assigned role in Cong uh, as a as a you know part of the separated powers situation. Do you do you let the world burn or do you start taking more and more aggressive unilateral executive actions? Obviously, for the most part, as he's gotten more and more and more aggressive in that sphere, it's, it's, it's unfolded in the domestic policy sphere, the immigration executive actions, no child left behind waivers. Um, and so forth, uh, aggressive use of environmental regulations to deal with climate change issues. But it begins, I believe, with the Libya situation because if a president goes to Congress and says, I need the authority to do X and Congress is too dysfunctional to vote on that, it, it takes away his power. But if the president just asserts that he has the authority to act and challenges Congress essentially to repudiate him, that same dysfunction prevents Congress from reacting in any coherent way, and it serves to enhance his power because not reacting when a claim has been made amounts to acquiescence. And I think he learns from that situation uh, that he can govern in a messier way, in a messier world, through executive action, and that moves us forward. And a lot of that is very different, though, than that the question of whether the deep state was, or the national security state was the one, <coughs> back, you know, the Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates, you know, a living embodiment of the deep state to some extent, you know, Bush is the Secretary of Defense and then Obama's Secretary of Defense and a former CIA director as well, uh, opposed that intervention. He didn't think it was the national interest, but the White House wanted to do it and so we did it. I'd like to uh, get to some of your questions. We, we have about 10 minutes for questions and it's the new year, so uh, resolve not to be that kind of Washington character who gives a speech that doesn't end in a question mark. Please uh, do keep your, uh, your questions short and make sure that they end with a question mark. Uh, raise your hand. I'll call on you. Wait for the mic to be brought around. Uh, state your affiliation if you think it matters uh, and ask a question. Uh, back there. Wait for the mic. I thought I could talk loud enough. Um, a question for Mike Glennon. Uh, I like very much the uh, focus on incentives that you uh, uh, built around, uh, built your analysis around to a great extent, but, uh, and, and specifically the incentive to put off uh, to future administrations uh, the costs of or the consequences of certain decisions. But I wonder if there's also uh, 
maybe an even more important incentive built into the dynamics of the national security state, which is that in every national security decision, every policy decision, there, is a, there are winners and losers. I mean, obviously, every time the United States goes to war, uh, there are people who win uh, in various ways, and there are losers in the process in this country. And so I'd like to ask you uh, for, for your view of how that sort of incentive fits into the dynamic, the power of the national security state and the way decisions are actually made in the, in the process. That's a, uh, a difficult and rather profound question, I, I, I must say. I, I think, uh, let me answer it this way. I, I, I think that in, in, it would be easy for a reader um, reading Power Wars to fall into what I'll, I'll refer to as the events fallacy, the, the fallacy flowing from the famous comment of uh, Harold Macmillan when he was asked what drives British foreign policy. He said, events, dear boy, events. It's easy to think that when you read Power Wars, because it's, it's so vividly told uh, and, and admirably told from the perspective of an insider that as a policymaker, you're always responding to the prior event. And there are no um, tectonic forces or background conditions that may cause one to weigh the costs and the benefits and identify the winners and losers in each decision. You're simply reacting as a rational, sensible policymaker to the preceding event. But events are the, are the, the ocean that policymakers swim in. There are these deeper tectonic forces and background conditions, as there were in the case of British foreign policy. I mean, Britain historically has sought to prevent the rise of a hostile economic power in the continent and tried to maintain friendly relations with the United States. It's not simply events. Just as it was not simply the event of the underwear bomber that everybody in power wars is responding to. There are winners and losers in all of these decisions, as you rightly point out. And the, the way policymakers come down in each case is influenced not unicausally by any set of background conditions or uh, historical drivers, such as the permanent security state, but those forces are present, and it would therefore be a mistake to think that you look at each decision solely and exclusively on its merits and decide winners and losers without regard to those background conditions. That's not the way policy is driven. Yes, sir, blue, uh, blue sweater. Hi, I'm uh, Max Rosenthal from Mother Jones Magazine. Um, this question is mostly for Charlie, though, um, if Michael would like to answer it all. I'm just curious, at, at the end of having written this book, um, in current conditions, do you believe that oversight or government control of uh, national security state actually is possible? And if yes, 
Um, what does that require? And if no, um, what should the response either by the public or um, parts of the government that are not involved in you know, the, the deep state, as you call it, what, what should their response be? Well, I, I think we've lived through a couple case studies that cut both ways. Um, so starting with congressional oversight, um, in his opening remarks, Michael talked about the Senate Intelligence Committee and the sort of agency capture problem. Um, but he was also very critical of the Senate torture report. I have a different view of that report. Um, so I, I think that in the realm of post 9-11 surveillance, the Intelligence Committees were clearly agency captured. They were not adversarial oversight and searching and rigorously questioning whether this stuff is necessary, whether it, it's true that it would have stopped 9-11, whether it is legitimately based in the text of the Patriot Act, the complete failure of oversight. But I think that the torture report is uh, the most searching adversarial oversight of the intelligence community we've seen since the church committee. I mean, that, that it's a, it's a, and we've only seen 500 pages of it. So someday someone will hopefully leak the other 6,000 words, pages, because the national security bureaucracy seems unlikely to let us see it de deliberately. Uh, but just to see in it the debunking of the claim, the thoroughly persuasive debunking of the claim that we would not have found Osama bin Laden's compound but for waterboarding, and seeing where the intelligence and how the trail led from A to B to C, it, you know, to see what vividly what it was to torture someone who turned out not to know anything, uh, to see the quoting the CIA's own cables on things like rectal rehydration and so forth, I think makes it impossible to go back to that and makes it clear for all of history what that was. And so I think it is still possible because that report shows what it looks like. Um, as far as going forward, you know, I, I, I reflect a lot in the, in the book towards the end about the problem of executive branch lawyering and what you do when you have lawyers who work for a president, who were appointed by the president, who are deliberating in secret, uh, and there's all in this place where the rules are blurry and there's all this pressure to come up with the expedient theory that lets the boss do the thing he thinks is necessary. And it's not just like his whim, right? And it seems to be like people will live or die based on these decisions. And can you, in that environment, and there's never going to come before a court because they just don't hear these kinds of cases for a variety of doctrinal reasons. Um, can there really be the rule of law and checks and balances as a substantive matter in that environment? And like, what what is the solution? I mean, in, in, people have, and he talks in his book some about, you know, various proposed solutions, as I do too. Bruce Ackerman at Yale Law School has suggested, for example, replacing the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department with an independent internal judiciary, essentially a supreme executive tribunal of life tenured or something, Senate confirmed judges. No one who's worked in government thinks that that's remotely pragmatic, that it, that, that would work. Um, it's in terms of these things are happening all the time and that a lot of the discussions are fluid between law and policy and deliberation. You just, there's not a place where you just, everything stops and we'll see what the court says next month when they get around to issuing, you know, th that's not how governance functions as a real world matter. So that doesn't seem to be a satisfying solution. And the problem is there doesn't seem to be 
a satisfying solution. Like an alternative, at least to Ackerman's credit, he came up with an idea and he put it out there. I don't have an alternative idea. So the, the best I've been able to come up with is transparency, the, 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 the check of public opinion, and uh, whether it's, hey, we're rectally rehydrating people, is that what we as a country are all about? Or whether it's, here's this interpretation of the Patriot Act that everyone thinks is laughably wrong once it's dragged into public light. Or here's the dilemma, and here's maybe people say, oh, that is a hard choice, but maybe that is what was necessary in the circumstances. It needs to be in the public view because the people making the decisions want to be respected by their peers. They're going to go back to the private sector or they're going to be standing for election or whatever. And the best I can come up with is less secrecy uh, as a sort of informal, blurry check in the absence of hard, hard checks. I think that's all we have time for. If we're going to end at 1.30, I want to uh, invite you all to join us up uh, upstairs for lunch on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. These two gentlemen will be selling and signing their books. I've read them both. I recommend them both uh, as highly as I possibly can. Both terrific books. Please join us upstairs. Thank you all for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you.